we use resumes in a certain way, it's helpful when you're looking to hire someone because it tells a story. So you know a resume has some sort of summary of accomplishments. This is what she did, this is her education, this is his life experiences, his skills. And yet for all that that does provide, it does fall short in describing everything you'd want to know about a person because so much of life doesn't fit into bullet statements. It's not quite that narrow. So much of life is complicated. There's a lot going on. And as we are diving into God's Word today, we are becoming more and more aware of the story of Joseph. That's what we've been looking at the last several weeks. And as we've thought about the story of Joseph, one thing we realize is there are twists and turns, and God redirects his life. God is always working, but it is anything but a straight line. It's actually just kind of weaves, and which is helpful for us to realize because a lot of our lives don't seem to be from point A to point B. It seems like God has us in a lot of different places at a lot of different times. And so this is helpful, and I hope you have benefited from pulling things out of the story. So much is uh, in some ways unexpected in the story, in the story of Joseph. So you would think like if God's going to use a family, if God's going to work in a family, he's going to pick, I would think like the best and the brightest, the people that, the people that are maybe kind and loving, merciful, wise, righteous, full of justice, and yet the family that God picks is surprising in that the family's filled with hatred and envy and bitterness and anger and like a lot of terrible things. The story surprises us. The story seems like I mean, a, a Christian story, a biblical story should seem to go like someone gets put into a place of temptation. They resist that, and they're rewarded for resisting. And yet the story of Joseph, he's, he's actually punished for resisting temptation. Kind of an unexpected place. But then even there, it's in his worst day. I mean, it was helpful to sing about that. At our worst, when life really, really hurts, the Lord didn't leave him. As a matter of fact, explicitly it says God was with him throughout all those things. So we've been learning that in the life of Joseph. And then certainly we were like, well, okay, Joseph was put into prison for like doing something right. Surely he'll be vindicated and surely that vindication should come soon. That's what I would want. That's what I would hope for. That's what I would be crying out to God, praying for. But we left last week with Joseph actually still in prison and this kind of ominous note that the person, the one person that could probably get him out of prison is the one who forgot about him the one who didn't remember him. So God knows exactly what he's doing. And God writes the absolute best stories. But it doesn't always seem like it's a straight line. And like sometimes it's winding all over the place. And I think that really resonates with us. Because as I begin to read the story of Joseph and begin to overlay my own frustrations and disappointments, the, the pain, the circumstances, the perseverance... I find so much that I can appreciate. And I also believe that the same God that Joseph was worshiping is the same God that we should give our whole lives to in worship of him. But today, today marks a turn in the story of Joseph. So chapter 41 is such a dramatic turn and we have to look at a very different kind of question and that's not like what do we do when everything goes wrong? Actually, Actually, Genesis 41 says, here's what it looks like when it all goes right. Here's what it looks like when things fall into place one after another. And it's like, and that happened. And that, like you won't believe from the beginning of chapter 41 to the end, just this night and day where Joseph is. 
It's kind of the story, and the story we know well. We've watched enough movies. We've watched enough shows. We know how this story is. It's like rags to riches. It's triumph. It's vindication. And like it kind of the final scene in a documentary where the person goes out on top, and they're at peace with their life, and they're at peace with their past, and they're at peace with everything else. That's where it seems like all of Genesis 41 is going to take us, but I think there are some surprises along the way. I think this is going to make us ask some questions that we may miss if we're only thinking rags to riches. So I want us to dig into this story. And uh, Genesis 41 actually has 57 verses. So thank you, Chris, for leaving me some time. I appreciate that because we'll need it today. Verse 1, can we begin reading? After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. By the way, that two years, yeah, that's the two years that Joseph is in prison and forgotten. So that's the two years referring to. Pharaoh, who's the king of Egypt, dreamed that he was standing by the Nile, and behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, they fed in the reed grass, and behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. The ugly, thin cows are, they ate up the seven attractive plump cows, and then Pharaoh awoke. He fell asleep, verse 5, he fell asleep and dreamed a second time, and behold, seven ears of grain, plump and gold and good, were, were growing on one stalk, and behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind, and the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears, and Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Just a little note here. This isn't like he's calling for David, David Copperfield and Houdini. That's not the magicians here. Actually, the, the court of Egypt would be filled with wise men like, think more the cabinet, the presidential cabinet, or think of like the national security advisors. That's more in the line of the positions who he's calling we need someone to kind of consult with to figure out what comes next. And so he assembles these people. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. So despite the fact that he has the best advisors, no one can help him. The chief cupbearer, we remembered him from last week, the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. And there was a young Hebrew that, that was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. And when we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And, and as he interpreted to us, so it came about. It happened just like he said it, it would. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit, and when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. You, you do have to wonder, right, what's going through his mind on this day that changed everything? I mean, he's going from day after day after day after day to one day, you've got an appointment, you're going to see Pharaoh, we've got to get going right now. Can you imagine all that's going through Joseph's mind? And says Pharaoh, he came in before Pharaoh and says in verse 15, and Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream and there's no one who can interpret it. But I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. 
Pharaoh's got a problem, and this is one of those deals, and maybe you've had one of these situations at work with a boss or maybe even someone in a family, like when Pharaoh has a problem, everybody has a problem. And like everything's going to stop until Pharaoh gets his problem fixed, until all this gets solved, until it gets resolved in his mind. And so he calls for Joseph to come, and Joseph shows up. Joseph hears from Pharaoh, I've had a dream, and I've heard you can interpret dreams. Can we keep reading? In verse 16, Joseph answered Pharaoh, and this is such a humble answer, it's not in me. So there's no kind of play of like, well, that happens to be something I'm good at. I've been known for that. You've come to the right person. It's none of that. It's not in me. But God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. So Pharaoh says to Joseph, behold, in my dream, I was standing on the banks of the Nile And we see in verse 18 again, the seven cows, plump and attractive, come up. Then verse 19, what follows, seven other cows come up after them, such as I'd never seen in all the land of Egypt. They were ugly, thin, and the thin, ugly cows, verse 28, up the first seven plump cows. And when they had eaten them, no one would have even known they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. I woke. Then I also saw in my dreams seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Then there were seven ears withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind sprouted out after them, and the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And this this is what I told to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Here's the interpretation. The seven good cows are seven years. The seven good ears are seven years, and the dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, The seven empty years blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them will arise seven years of famine. And all the the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be just unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow. For it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that the thing is fixed by God. God will shortly bring it about. Again, Joseph is summoned to the king's presence, and lots of good things are going to happen for Joseph. This passage is also pointing us to some other questions, and one of those questions is much more than about Pharaoh and his dream and Joseph and his interpretation. I think one of the questions that this passage is pointing us to is what I I would call the supremacy question, and that is who rules over everything? See, embedded in this story is a question of, like, who's in charge of the world? Who's in charge of agriculture? Who's in charge of, of crops? And who's in charge of the next seven years and the seven years after that? Who's in charge of all those things? Who rules over everything? And the clear answer is, not Pharaoh. Not Pharaoh. He's in charge of a lot. But the limits of what he's able to control, that they are profound. They're significant. There are things that are far beyond his control. Yet, as Joseph references God, and he does so five times in this chapter, five different times he comes back to God in just the verses that I read. Notice he says in verse 16, God is the one who gives the interpretation. God is the one who rules over everything. God is the one who reveals things in verse 25. God is the one who shows things in verse 28. 
God is the one who determines things in verse 32. God is the one who brings things about in verse 32. Every realm is under his control. Every square inch he rules over. This God doesn't have territorial limits. He doesn't have like these neat boundaries that like, oh, there you're talking about a different God, but here you're talking about uh, this God. No, no, it's not the way it works for him. Even though, think about it, the morning or the evening the Pharaoh went to bed and had those dreams, it would have looked like to any observer, just processing the data, you would have observed that in that area of the world, the most powerful person was Pharaoh. But by the next day, it's very clear. There's only one who rules over all nations, and that is the one true God. And we need to remember this. Each one of us are citizens of an earthly nation. For many in the room, that's you're a citizen of the U.S. For, for many, though, in our congregation, they're citizens of other nations, but we're joining together as the one people of God. What a good reminder that every single nation, every single flag, every single group, every single government, there is one God that rules over every single one. This is, this is God. He raises up. He raises up nations. He puts down others. He raises up leaders. He puts down others. I, I, I don't know that it's ever been easier to get sucked into believing. And believe you, there's plenty of news and plenty uh, of, of media out there that would love for you to believe the only thing that matters is a power struggle. Who's in office? What party? This group? That group? Who's going to win this? Who's going to, to rule here? And we could easily breathe in all that air because that's, that's frankly all we do all the time and we see it all the time. And we could forget something very, very significant that actually this passage is going to point us to. And that is, regardless of what the endless news cycle will tell you, there is someone who rules over it all. And it's God. And he is in charge. And he is in control. And our allegiance, first and foremost, is to him. And he will work out his plan for our good, for his glory. He's the one who rules over everything. And by the way, as Joseph speaks of God, he is using this occasion to bring a certain knowledge of God. So the culture of Egyptians, I mean, there would be many gods. They would worship many gods, but notice Joseph doesn't happen to just kind of give slight references to, you know, Pharaoh, I happen to be a person of faith, or my faith is very important to me, or I, I you know, I consider myself a spiritual person. No, he is like, he's saying, this is who God is. This is exactly who he is. This is who he's revealed himself to be. He's not one among many. He's the one true God. And I think that's so, so critical because he is pointing us to the fact that God acts in concrete ways. There's specifics, which I so, so appreciated uh, Corin and Paula leading us this morning in singing like, I believe in God the Father. I believe in Christ the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I mean, there's edges to this. We don't just believe in a, a, a nebulous higher power out there. We believe in certain things about how God has revealed himself. And we didn't make those things up. We didn't fill in our own thought bubble. We've taken that from scripture as it's been passed down to us. So, so important. So there's this supremacy question. Who rules over everything? There's only one answer to that. It's not Pharaoh. It's not even going to be Joseph. It's God Almighty. Look at verse 33. So we left off like God's going to bring this thing shortly about. Verse 33, Joseph's still speaking. He says, this is what we need to do. Pharaoh, you need to select a discerning and wise man, set him over the land of Egypt. 
and let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. Verse 35, and, and let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. On this proposal, please Pharaoh and all his servants. Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Notice now Pharaoh is talking about the one true God. He says, Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, so, so Joseph speaks up for who God is and now Pharaoh is adopting the language. Just a, a powerful part of the story. God has shown you all this. There is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and all, all my people shall order themselves as you command. You just kind of feel Joseph rising in the story. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. Pharaoh said to Joseph, look, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, the mark of authority, he clothed them in garments of fine linen, put a gold chain around his neck. He made him ride in the second chariot, and they called out before Joseph, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I'm Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Joseph has risen to power. And even in the midst of that, what you're reading is God putting Joseph in this place of authority. God is showing his supremacy over ancient Egypt. This isn't even about Joseph getting to be large and in charge. God's doing something here, and, and so let's keep reading. Let's keep reading what happens to Joseph. So in verse 45, Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphonath Paneah, and he gave him in marriage Azinath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went throughout all the, all the land of Egypt. And during the seven plentiful years, the, the earth produced abundantly, gathered up all the food of those seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt. He put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. And then there's this detail that I find extremely significant in verse 50. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Azanath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For, he said, God has made me forget all my hardship, all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So many interesting things going on there. So he gets a name change. I don't think he had a choice in that. Like Pharaoh says, this is what we're going to call you. Yes, that's what you're going to get called. He also gets a wife. I don't think he had much choice on that. I don't think it's like, well, I met this girl back in college that I really was going, and it's not the way that's going to work either. Like this is going to be the way this is going to work. He's got a wife. But interesting when he does have a choice, when it comes to naming his children, 
Did you notice the name is not an Egyptian name? Both the names are actually Hebrew names. When he makes the choice of identifying his children, naming them, he makes a very decisive choice. And I I think that brings us to a question, and I could call it an identity question. That question would be, how do I choose to communicate who I am? Because we see Joseph making a choice. He could be completely ready to move on from the past. I mean, let's face it, the names he gives are Hebrew names. They're, they're kind of part of his lineage, which actually brought, would have to bring a lot of pain. I mean, he calls it hardship. So he could easily, like, I'm, I'm moving on. Like, I've got an Egyptian job, a, r- a rather coveted one. Got an Egyptian name. I live in an Egyptian world. I've got an Egyptian, I've got Egyptian in-laws. Like, Egypt is my life now. And yet, for some reason, he goes back to the past. And he takes these names to publicly mark and say something that I am first and foremost. I worship the one true God. When he names his firstborn Manasseh, it's not so much, it it means simply forgetting. And what he's saying is not like, I forget my family. He's saying, I forget the hardships. Even that my family brought, I, I am, I, I am, forgetting those things. I'm choosing to identify myself with my, my family, the family that's the family of covenant promise with God. When he has his next son, it's Ephraim, which means fruitful. And he's saying, even in a land of affliction, God has chosen to bless me. I've been fruitful. I can't get past the perspective of Joseph that everywhere I hear him speaking, every time I turn around, he is bringing God to bear in every circumstance. Every situation, even in the naming of his kids. I, I see in him the boldness. And by the way, it's interesting to me that long after these rulers in Egypt, in Egypt are forgotten, the names he gives his sons will not be. They're part of the 12 tribes of Israel. Manasseh and Ephraim will be, I mean, we're still talking about them. He makes a definite marker. How, do, how are you going to communicate who you are, Joseph? He gives us an indicator of what's going on in his heart, which is so important because in many ways we live in Egypt as well. We, we live in a world filled with darkness, and sometimes we advance in that world, sometimes we don't. But part of what we do as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, is marking out who we are. Part of the reason why we gather is not just because we believe in religious gatherings like this, there's something about like when we walk in and identify, yes, we are part of the people of God here. We are the ones who bow the knee to Jesus Christ. And we, we praise him. We sing his praises. We worship him. We say things like, when I think that God is son not sparing, we, we're agreeing to that. When we say that, we say how great he is. There's something about doing that week in there's, and, and week out. There's something about praying in Jesus' name, which not, isn't like the tagline at the end. It's saying, no, no. I have a mediator who's in heaven. I'm praying in his name. There's something even we were hoping to baptize, and we'll we'll get to that point where we can baptize. But when we baptize, we baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Next week, Lord willing, we will have observed communion and the Lord's Supper, and we'll gather, and it'll be yet another marker to say, you know how we choose to identify ourselves? As people who are part of the new covenant, we are Christ. We are his. That's who we are. 
And we know he won't turn on us. And we're saying, I've decided to follow him. No turning back. Do you appreciate that impulse? I, I do love what Joseph did in naming his sons. Let's finish reading the chapter. It says in verse 53, the seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt did come to an end. And then the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt, there was bread. Because when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread, and Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, you go to Joseph. What he says to you, you do. When the famine had spread all over the land, Joseph opened the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, verse 57, all the earth came to, J to Egypt, to Joseph, to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. They're all coming to Joseph. My goodness, he starts this chapter in prison, and now, not even just Egypt, not just even a region, not just like the city mayor or something, like everybody all over the world is coming to him. Even Pharaoh's saying, talk to Joseph. He's the one running this whole thing. And yet this story, as much as I think like this is, this is, this is the, the resolution. So here's the fairy tale ending. Joseph kind of, we, we end the story with him making decisions in charge, taking care of people. It's the, it's the guy or the gal who's nobody who invented the product or hit a bunch of home runs or was in the right place at the right time or created a masterpiece and, and now forever enjoys the fame and the riches and the, the glory and the power that goes along with it. That's the story. We kind of applaud the ending and yet, like, wait a minute, wait a minute. What you have to recognize is this story isn't over. God's not done f telling the story of Joseph. And that's so critical, and that's kind of the last question where, where I go. Where, where does the story of Joseph reach its destination? And maybe another significant question is, how do you, you see your story, and what will be the final destination for you? Like, I, I mean the ultimate one, like what were the, the main goal. So is, is the story of Joseph, like we're, we're, when he finally reaches to be the prime minister, then like, way to go. And here's a blueprint for you to follow to be that successful in your life, if you're lucky. Is that what this is all about? It's not. Genesis 41 isn't the end of Genesis. And this certainly isn't the end of the story of Joseph. I mean, you can learn a lot, and I hope you do. I hope if you have a position of influence and authority, I hope if you're a teach, teacher or a coach or a supervisor or a manager or an owner of some business, or some other influential position, I hope you use your, your influence much like Joseph did. I hope you use it to bless other people. I hope you use it to speak up for God. I hope you do that. I hope God gives you the spiritual stamina to endure the tough times and that God may open a door for you to see better times. I really do hope that. But you revisit Joseph again, and without getting too far ahead of ourselves, there's something bigger going on here. Joseph li Joseph's life, actually the best part of Joseph's story has not even been written yet when you come to chapter 41. That's because even though this is a major life-shaping, life-turning event, there's something that God is going to continue to do in Genesis 42 and 43 and 44. What we know is God isn't just going to lift Joseph up. He's going to restore relationships with this family of promise. Like God's not done with Abraham's family and Isaac's family and Jacob's family. 
And one of the most emotional scenes has not even happened yet when Joseph is reunited with his dad. And after all those years, after Jacob thinking, I mean, my goodness. Like all that is still left to be when Joseph's prime minister. I'm just saying the story's not over. So I don't know what you have in your mind as like the resolution. If I reach my goal, if I really hit it, it would look like this. But for Joseph, that isn't necessarily even to be a prime minister. That's about mercy and forgiveness putting on display. God healing hearts. God doing all things, like doing a new thing in the family of Joseph. Maybe you set your sights like, I want to get this kind of grade. I want to be valedictorian. I want to get this GPA. I want to live this kind of lifestyle. I want to kind of have this image. I have this number in mind with this number of digits. And I have this position. And when people look at me as this, and when I have this kind of it, when I'm, I'm the perfect this or that on, you know, everybody knows that I, if that's your aim, I'd say there's probably lots of good things to commend in all those goals. I just want you to aim a little higher and realize you could achieve all of that. But there's a greater destination that I want you to reach to. I want you to think about the day, not where you hit it big and everybody recognizes you're this or that or you have so much money you don't have to think about it or you finally got graduated with this and that, I want you to think about the day when you meet the Lord. So I, I really am talking about the final destination, the ultimate destination. When you realize, okay, I believed in you, but now my faith has become sight, and I poured out my life living for you, and I made decisions based on you being everything. And every ounce of energy, like what will it mean that day? Every time you've tried to live wisely and tried to live generously and tried to live sacrificially. I read of people retiring and one, one, one person said this week they retired from a sport and said, I gave it everything I could. And I, I think like, man, don't you want to meet the Lord? And like, let's lift our eyes to not just in playing a game, but like with our whole lives. I, I gave it everything I could, Lord. Listen to Paul. Maybe this will help elevate our sights in 2 Timothy 4. When he's about to meet the Lord face to face, I fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. There is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. I don't know what you're shooting for, but I'm guessing most all of us could just adjust our sights a little bit higher and go, even if I achieve this, that, and the other, and I, and I hope lots of people in this room achieve lots of things, yeah. And what if we could say this with Paul? I love the story of Joseph because over and over again, you just get these parallels. And I, and I want to kind of leave us with this one parallel, and I, I don't think it's an accident, but... Just as you close out chapter 41, you get this picture of all the world having a life-threatening issue. Like there's, where's help going to come from for the whole world? And then you realize, okay, this is the way help is going to come for the whole world. God's going to bring salvation through one individual. And then you think, okay, and that one individual is a Hebrew who has been rejected and betrayed and falsely accused. And this one individual who's going to be the savior of the world, who's been rejected and betrayed, is now exalted and lifted up. 
and truly becomes the savior of the world in some sense, in some sense. And yet, I think all this is pointing us to, to someone much greater than Joseph, who's not just going to be the savior of the world in a limited sense, but the savior of all the world for all eternity, and that's Jesus. Yeah, that's where we lift up our eyes and go, that is the ultimate destination. Let me pray for us. Help us, Lord, to be built up with faith. Help us to have that ultimate destination in mind so that uh, we won't, oh, we won't be so afraid when identifying with you costs us something. I pray that you will help us see ways in which we mark out our lives and our families' lives and our, our, with our friends and with our time and with everything we've got. We mark out and we say, we are yours, Lord. We are yours. So I pray our sights will be raised. Thank you for bringing us to this point where we hear the story of one individual. But I thank you even more than that. What your Holy Spirit can do in hundreds of lives today. So I pray that you would do it so that Jesus would be glorified. We ask all this in his name. Amen.